Hey, Kate. Hey, Hannah. How are you doing today? I'm good. What do you have to drink today? Uh, you know, today I am doing a repeat, I think, of a recent episode. I'm having an Olipop. Oh! Uh, another little prebiotic soda. Um, mm-hmm. And today's flavor is cream soda. Oh, yum. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have over there, Kate? Um, <laughs> funny you should ask. I also have an Olipop. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and my flavor, this is actually my favorite flavor, is the vintage cola. Mm, that one is good. Yeah. Day by day, we're becoming the same person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Okay, you ready to get into it? Let's do it. Howdy, Howdy from, from Houston. Houston. I'm Kate. And I'm Hannah. And today, we're going to be talking about one of our classes that we're about done with. We're about wrapping it up. Um, it's been a semester-long course called MSGR, which stands for Medical Student Grand Rounds. So basically the intent of this course that we've been doing has been kind of an introduction to reading research articles. Is that what you'd say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a literature review type yeah. of thing. So yeah. learning how to use like appropriate search databases to find research articles, to find clinical studies, like all sorts of stuff, and how to like educationally and appropriately read through those. And we have we were each allowed to like pick a very specific topic that we were interested in, which I thought was really cool that we were able to individually find something that we were specifically interested for ourselves. Like we didn't get assigned anything. It was whatever you want. Exactly. And because sometimes we get assigned to do something with a team, mm-hmm. which you might compromise some of your interests for the interests of the team. Like you might still be interested in the topic, but not like, I really want to dive into this topic because I'm really passionate about it, which yeah, was very cool and made it a lot easier to do the research too, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I found myself doing research throughout this semester and, or not doing research, but reading research throughout this semester um, and just spending like way more time on assignments than I would have before because I was just interested and just really absorbing the material and just being very fascinated by it. And then like I would find myself too later, like talking to pals, talking to friends, being like, oh my gosh, let me tell you what I learned. This is so cool, which I just, I love that environment of being in medical school. Like I feel like that is happening way more now in school than it ever did like when I was an undergrad. Yeah, me too. I definitely spent a lot more time putting together a recent presentation we had to do for this class than I probably would have otherwise, just because I was, I know that I'm interested in this topic and I wanted other people to be also interested mm-hmm. in this topic because it's important and I'm passionate about it. And right. It's very, I find it very interesting. Yeah, me too. I found the exact same scenario for the topic I was looking at. Like when I was preparing this presentation that we just recently had, um, I was finding myself having to, you know, pare it down because I just had too much information in there. I was like, all right, we don't need to get into this much detail. Let's focus on the highlights. <laughs> yeah. So what are the highlights? Well, so this semester I have been looking at specifically phantom limb pain and how it has been treated with TDCS, which is transcranial direct current stimulation. And we'll get into what all that means. But first, maybe focus a little bit on PLP, which is phantom limb pain. So a little bit of history about phantom limb pain, a little fun fact. Uh, it's been... I think documented, like the earliest documentation was in the 16th century, so like 1500s. Oh, wow. So a long time ago. Um, the pirates? 
yeah, you know, just ancient times. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> but the first time it was documented medically and actually acknowledged as phantom limb pain uh, was in like the mid 1800s, so during the okay. Civil War era. Oh wow! So there were a lot more amputees during. Like they, they figured out how to do amputations in a more uh, survivable way, I guess, <laughs> during that time period, and also the war kind of triggered some of uh, some of those medical medically necessary interventions. Um, and it was Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell who first coined the term phantom limb pain. Okay. Um, and he described it as ghostly, which I thought was just kind of like <laughs> kind of a fun little tidbit. Um, yeah. But really, since then, like phantom limb pain has it's taken a long time for it to be acknowledged as an actual problem and and not just something that is an extra note on a doctor's note when you go in for the visit so following amputation it was it seemed like historically the focus has been more on physical presentation of symptoms like are did your stitches heal well do you have any inflammation like more more tangible things whereas phantom limb pain it's a little harder to describe it's a little harder to um just specifically give detail to you know because it's it there's no limb there you know there's a, if you have a below the elbow amputation you can't say my thumb hurts because your thumb isn't there anymore but if right. that's what the patient's experiencing like that's what they're experiencing right well and that kind of just goes back to like the whole western medicine of addressing the physical problems of, of what's there so that's good to hear that they're now starting to address pain that exists mm -hmm. but also kind of doesn't exist right exactly um so part of the challenge of this has just been documentation over the past you know since the 1850s right mm -hmm. um because since it is so widely variable too you know some patients experience phantom limb pain uh, only for a week after surgery. Sometimes they experience it for a month. Sometimes they experience it for years. Sometimes they never stop experiencing it. It's also something that varies in duration. You know, some people who, with amputations experience phantom limb pain for um, five minutes at a time. Sometimes it's hours at a time. Sometimes it's like just a constant sensation that's always there but kind of dull. Um, sometimes it's just something that spikes up once a month. You know, it's really hard to predict who is going to experience phantom limb pain uh, and when they're going to experience it. And it's, and part of that, like I said, is because of documentation. There hasn't been a ton of documentation following amputations in the past, let's say, 100 years of amputations. So when, when you're trying to compile data and see like, okay, well, where do we find some correlations between maybe types of amputations, you know, upper limb versus lower limb or finger versus arm, you know, just the, what types of amputations correlating with what types of pain, mm -hmm. um, whether maybe the amputation was due to a traumatic event or maybe it was, you know, something a little more planned. A lot of times that would be like if somebody had an injury in the past and maybe it didn't heal very well and it's been a few years, they got a lot of chronic pain. So they decided to have an amputation instead of maintaining the limb. A um, lot of options. Point being, it's hard to find these correlations because there's not a lot of data. So it's just been this like fascinating thing to dive into and try and figure out like some of those connections. Yeah, that is cool. Especially when you kind of talk about finding a correlation with the type of amputation and the type of phantom limb pain. Like mm -hmm. I don't know much about it, but let's say like uh, amputation at the elbow 
mostly correlates with thumb pain or something. Mm. But I would be more curious if there's no, like, I would guess that there would be less of a correlation just because every person is different. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone, maybe it has to do with what fingers you use. If there's a, a trans elbow amputation, or something like that. I don't know. Like maybe. just like just like what 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 you use more of. Maybe right. it's like something like that versus like the actual physical. I don't know. Yeah, I think but, there are a lot of things that go into it, and yeah. and that kind of brought me to like the next phase of my presentation that yeah. I was looking into was um, like what even causes phantom limb pain. Yes, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> what a great transition <laughs> segue. Natural. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of theories out there of what causes phantom limb pain. And right now there are kind of two leading theories that they've combined to say it's one theory in a way. So it's it's looking at both the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. Okay. So quick reminder, central nervous system, brain and spinal cord. Peripheral nervous system is all the nerves that are leaving the spinal cord. So it's pretty obvious to see how the peripheral nervous system would be affected by an amputation, right? The <laughs> nerves are cut. The nerves are chopped off. Yeah. So you have all these nerves going out to your, let's say, uh, let's stick with the example of an upper limb below the elbow amputation. Um, so you have all those nerves going out to your hand. As soon as you have an amputation in the middle of your forearm or up near your elbow or down near your wrist, whatever it is, all those um, receptors that are out at your fingertips and in your palm and in your wrist, they're now no longer there. So the highway or the signal pathway, the rest of the nerve though, is still in the rest of your arm and still going up through your shoulder and up into your neck and up into your brain and ultimately synapsing still in your brain. And so if you don't have that, that same receptor signal, like your, those little highways are, are getting confused. You know, like whatever information is getting sent on those nerves is not coming from the place it originally was coming from. So that is part of what is affected during an amputation when it comes to the, the nerves. The other half of it is the central nervous system. So that's going to be spinal cord and brain. So primarily the focus is on uh, the brain and they, they refer to it as cortical remapping theory. So the easiest way to kind of understand this is um, in your brain, there the outside of, of your brain, a cortex, the cortex part, uh, they call it a homunculus, which if we, if we can try and explain that, you know, in, in simple terms, basically different parts of the outside of your brain are associated with different parts of your body. And it looks, the way it's oriented on the outside of your brain looks kind of like a human body. <laughs> so in the center of your brain, you're going to have like your feet and then your legs and your knees. And then kind of right at the peak of your brain, right down, down the middle is where you're going to have kind of your hips and your groin region. And then as you go down the outsides of your brain, parallel or symmetrically down the outsides, kind of the right and left hemispheres, you're going to have your torso and then your arms and then your hands. And your hands actually take up a pretty big chunk of that space. And then you're going to have your face and your tongue and all this other stuff. So that's kind of the that's as you're going down the outsides of the right and left sides of your brain. Mm -hmm. And if you want a visual, if you Google homunculus, mm -hmm. it makes it really clear and easy to understand. Right. Yeah. So basically that's where all those nerves that are out in your hand, 
that's where they're all ending up. That's where the signal is ending. So if the signal that's going there is wrong or interrupted or messed up, that part of your brain, the central nervous part service, central nervous system part of your brain is getting really confused. So using the same example of uh, below the elbow amputation, your hand is no longer there. So where are all of those signals going in your hand? So maybe uh, if you touch your elbow, which still exists, was not chopped off, <laughs> that signal might come in and interfere with the part of your brain that is supposed to receive a signal from your hand. So now when you touch your elbow, maybe in your brain, that signal is landing on like physically landing on the part where your hand used to be so in your head you are feeling a sensation let's say on your palm when you touch your elbow and the face part of the homunculus is also pretty close to where the hand is on the brain so some some patients when they touch their face or their nose or their forehead it triggers a sensation in their hand which again their hand isn't there anymore so how are they feeling something in their hand when it's not there and when they're not even touching that region of their body so it's a really fascinating theory of where all of this pain comes from. And then the second half of what I was looking into, not just understanding what is phantom limb pain, but how do you treat it? So there are a ton of theories out there on how to treat it. And the one that I chose to focus on uh, was transcranial direct current stimulation. So it's TDCS. I sometimes trip over that and call it DTCS and <laughs> get the letters mixed up, but TDCS. Um, transcranial direct current stimulation. So it's non-invasive. Basically you put anodes on the scalp and uh, you use this very low intensity electrical current uh, through the brain. And essentially what that does is it just modulates the activity of the neurons. So it causes your, the way that I understood it and um, you know, this is, this is kind of a high level first year medical student understanding. <laughs> um, it interferes with the, those connections in the cortex. So it forces, it kind of just causes like a traffic jam. So it, it both increases excitability and decreases excitability of those nerves. So it's not just causing your nerves to have more action and it's not just causing your nerves to have less action in that part of your brain. It's causing like a whole mix of things. Forcing, the theory is it's forcing the nerves to say, hey, there's like a huge traffic jam right here and we can't go here anymore. So let's find a new direction to go. Let's find a new path. Let's figure this out. So the idea is just that it's creating like a mess for your brain to do something different. Interesting. And it's interesting to me too, that creating a mess causes your brain to do something different. Yeah. Sometimes you gotta make a mess to clean up a mess. <laughs> right. And to figure out a new way forward, which Wow. Could be a larger metaphor. <laughs> this is like a lesson on life. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess the idea is just that creating this kind of chaotic space to redirect the activity of your brain to have some different signals. Um, and a lot of the research is still pretty fresh, still pretty new. And so the rest of my discussion on um, this topic kind of focused more on the gaps in research and where we need to be looking or where I think we should be looking moving forward. So a lot of these research articles, there were like three big things that I noticed. Um, one was the timing. So a lot of these articles had very, very different definitions of what was short-term versus long-term relief of phantom pain. So some articles focused on long-term being like two or three weeks mm. and other articles said like long-term was over a year. 
And, you know, I think that should be something that's maybe a little more standardized. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you're doing research on it. Right. And especially if you're actually wanting to solve this problem. You know, in reality, if you are somebody who is experiencing phantom limb pain, I don't want to go into something saying, or I don't, I don't want somebody to present a treatment to me saying, hey, this will provide long-term relief. And in their minds, long-term relief is two weeks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So kind of focusing on that as like, what is really a long-term pain relief solution? Um, Another thing I thought we should focus on uh, moving forward with this type of research was how transcranial direct current stimulation or other types of neuromodulating treatments could treat associated symptoms. So to kind of go back to the definition of phantom limb pain, phantom limb pain falls underneath a category of phantom limb sensation. So sometimes people will experience not, not just pain or sometimes they won't even experience pain, but they'll still experience sensation in their missing limb so this could be touch this could be like light feathery kind of sensation this could be temperature changes it could be itching uh, anything like that so it doesn't just have to be pain so i think it would be really interesting to focus on like other symptoms that are associated with this missing limb sensation as well um but they also talk about how uh, or a lot of these articles talked about how Patients were also experiencing cognitive changes, like difficulty focusing, difficulty, you know, using simple math skills. And a lot of them also had depression and anxiety and noted that with this treatment, those things also improved. Interesting. And when I was presenting this, one of our faculty members kind of actually had a, had a comment for me. Um, and he mentioned that it's kind of this cyclical process that, you know, pain causes depression. So if you, and depression causes pain, you know, just to break it down to something really simple. Mm -hmm. So if you fix the depression, that helps fix the pain. If you fix the pain, it helps fix the depression. So it's kind of just this like cyclical thing. So who's to say if TDCS, you know, treated the pain or if it treated the depression, one or the other, um, but definitely saw some improvements, but they were, they were parts of the studies that were not like the main focus. So I, it would be really cool to see, um, something a little more intentional with those two kinds of related fields within phantom limb pain. Um, and then the last thing was just other types of treatments and how we could maybe connect those with TDCS. So one thing being uh, mirror therapy, that's kind of like the leading treatment right now um, for phantom limb pain because it's free basically, you know, there's no cost to it other than maybe, you know, being led or guided by like a physical therapist. Um, and this is that classic imagery that you've probably heard of with uh, phantom limbs or amputations where you basically just, let's say you have, going back to that example, uh, below the elbow, left hand amputation. So mirror therapy would be a mirror is set up next to your right arm that still exists. Your right arm did not get amputated. And you start doing these movements with your right hand and it's reflected in the mirror. So you as the patient can see both your right hand and the reflection of your right hand, which looks like your left hand. And so you do these treatments with the movement and the therapy, and it helps maybe do something similar to the transcranial direct current simulation of like retraining those neural pathways in the cortex to just do something different, you know, adjust. <laughs> um, so not just using mirror therapy, but how could we use mirror therapy with transcranial direct current? Um, or just transcranial direct current simulation with other types of neural, neural modulation therapies. There are a ton out there that are, you know, being explored for all sorts of, um, you know, neural treatments or neural conditions. Like there's depression that has been under research with TDCS or magnetic stimulation, all sorts of stuff. Um, so it'd just be really neat to see 
those things be combined or used with other types of therapies um, in just a more intentional way. So that's what I focused on, phantom limb pain and TDCS. Yeah, that's um, all really interesting. I definitely heard about um, transcranial magnetic stimulation mm-hmm. for anxiety and depression and PTSD types right. of things. And so just to hear that it has more applications is really cool as well. Yeah, it was really neat. And I definitely like to keep looking into it. So maybe over the summer, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. And what about you, Kate? What was your focus? My focus was a little more psychology based. Mm-hmm. Mine was improving outcomes for postpartum depression, um, which is something that is not quite noticed, I think, mm-hmm. enough. More these days, it is monitored, and women are asked when they go back, when they go into their pediatrician's office, their child's pediatrician's office. Mm. They're usually given a questionnaire, um, but it hasn't been until recently that doctors have been like, "Oh, this is an issue." One of the big reasons it's an issue is because it can lead to not only suicide, but also infanticide. Mm. Um, In 2010, there was a woman who had postpartum depression from her first kid, and it went untreated, and Mm -hmm. then she had another kid, and then it it compounded, and she had, I want to say, either one or two more kids, and she ended up committing, she ended up killing all her kids, and I think her husband and herself, just because of an untreated, undiagnosed postpartum depression because it had gone from depression to psychosis. Right. So it's, yeah. It's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. It would be really good if we could, again, take care of our moms. Yeah. Especially, you know, after having a baby, that's a tough thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. It does seem like, um, you know, obviously not having experience (laughs) with this, but it does seem like there's a lot of focus on the pregnancy. Right. And then once you have the child, it's like, okay, you're no longer under OB care. I mean, maybe if you maintain that relationship with your OB-GYN, but I know a lot of women probably don't. Yeah, there isn't a lot of, like, mandatory, not mandatory follow-up, but your OB typically, unless there are complications from your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. There are no complications. Your OB says, great, go home, have your, here's your baby, take care of it, <laughs> hope you're end. happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And your baby has a lot of follow-up appointments with their yeah. pediatrician to get vaccines, to make sure they're healthy and mm-hmm. growing right and all of that good stuff. But the mom doesn't have it. Yeah, so. I thought that was interesting when you first said, like right at the beginning, that the mother is asked by the child's pediatrician about postpartum depression. Yeah. Where that definitely seems like something that should be asked by like a primary care physician or somebody who's treating the mother, not just treating the child. Right. Well, the mother doesn't go in. So that's, that's why pediatricians offices are starting to have it more for the mother now. And if you think about it, I don't know how practical it would be for moms to be expected to go in it should be expected, I think, for new moms to just go get checked out. Right. And physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. But if you have a newborn baby, I mean, I obviously have never had a newborn baby, <laughs> but I could imagine all your time and energy is focused on the baby. Right. And then in what little personal time you do have, you just want to rest. Right. Rather than go into a doctor's office, which could take a few hours depending on wait times and things like that. Yeah. 
So overall, it just kind of is a whole system that needs to be reformed. Um, but kind of getting into a little bit, postpartum depression is defined as at least five depressive symptoms present for at least two weeks with peripartum onset. So with onset when you have your baby. Mm. These symptoms are most commonly depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure, loss of energy or fatigue, insomnia or hypersomnia, feelings of worthlessness or guilt, and or suicidal ideation or attempt, and recurrent thoughts of death. So onset is usually, actually I misspoke before, it's not, doesn't have to be exactly at birth, but it can be usually about four to six weeks after birth, and it can last up to two years or longer. Mm. Do you know if it ever happens before you have your child? Typically not, because the way your hormones work, women have mostly estrogen and progesterone, Mm -hmm. like men have testosterone, those are our female hormones, Mm -hmm. and during pregnancy, your levels of progesterone are elevated, and actually, I'll get into this a little more later, but when you have your baby, your levels of progesterone drop. Mm. Like right when you have your baby, your body's like, okay, no more stimulus. So when you have your baby, your level of progesterone suddenly drops. Mm. And there's another hormone along with progesterone called allopregnolone. And those two hormones are decreased in the cerebral spinal fluid, so the fluid in your spine and in your bloodstream, those two hormones are decreased in people with anxiety and depression. Mm. So when, and allopregnolone is a metabolite of progesterone. So when progesterone is metabolized, one of the byproducts is allopregnolone. So this hormone, these two hormones could have a correlation with postpartum depression but that research is still really new. So that could be what causes it. And so since those levels are super elevated during pregnancy, it's likely that you don't have the postpartum depression during pregnancy unless you have a history of depression and are already depressed. Okay. Thing. Yeah. So um, a couple of adverse outcomes from postpartum depression are Um, Obviously, negative impacts on the mother-infant relationship. Infants can suffer from impaired behavioral, emotional, and cognitive development. The infant, you said? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Infants may have stunted growth in the first year, so there are physical uh, implications of Mm -hmm. this. And then just kind of, maybe this is obvious, but mothers who suffer from postpartum depression don't parent as effectively as mothers who do not, so that impaired behavioral behavioral, emotional, and cognitive development could be from nurture as well. I was going to ask that. So did most of the research that you looked at say that because of this changed relationship between the mother and the infant, that that's likely what's causing the problems with the infant? Um, They don't know. I don't Mm. think, I didn't see anything about that. There's not too much research on postpartum depression Mm -hmm. because pregnant women are automatically excluded from research studies. Right. So unless you specifically have a research study to study pregnant women and then go through the extra approvals because they're considered vulnerable population. Right. So Like children or something. Right. Right. Prisoners, 
um, mm-hmm. pregnant ladies, yeah, things like that, those kinds of people. So there's not a lot of research. Yeah, mm-hmm. which leaves lots of room for new research. Yeah, yeah, ethical research, hopefully. Exactly, yeah. ethical <laughs> and safe understanding. Yes, research. they are vulnerable patients, so or yes. vulnerable participants in the study. So yes, yeah, exactly. So some of the pathogenesis, so disease-causing states of postpartum depression, it um, can cause dysfunction of the hypothalamic-pituitary axis, Mm. which is basically your hormones that regulate stress. Okay. So when you have a baby, this axis is disrupted, so you have a new baby, plus you already can't handle stress very well because physically your body just... The hormones aren't working right. Um, there can be some inflammation in your brain. Well, general infla- general imbalance of hormones, just obviously from having a baby. Um, your neurotransmitters can be out of whack a little bit. And then genetics can play in a component. And all of this happening within your body in addition to your socioeconomic status, your demographic information, your psychiatric history, how much support you have can all play a role in whether or not you get postpartum depression, mm-hmm. which is another reason it's kind of hard to study because there's so many different factors that go into it. Mm. They do find though that if you have a history of depression, you are more likely to get postpartum depression. Um, so there are some treatment methods that have been studied. Um, I want to focus on the ones I kind of thought were interesting. So. The impact of exercise and the Mediterranean diet was one paper I looked at. And so they studied the impact of exercise alone and then the impact of Mediterranean diet alone and then the impact of the combination. Interestingly, with the impact of exercise, they found that the exercise group didn't have a statistically significant difference from the control group. So that means that exercising doesn't isn't proven to help with postpartum depression. According to this study. According to this study, but the depression ratings were lower. Just not like... Statistically significantly lower. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So there could be, again, other factors at play there, Mm -hmm. whether that's a demographic... Demographics? Or your support system, things like that. In this study, was it about preventing onset of postpartum depression or was this were these women who were already diagnosed with postpartum depression this was about preventing onset interesting yeah because that could be another factor too it's like you know a little difficult to tell who is more at risk of developing postpartum depression you know the group of patients that they were using as part of their population could have been skewed one way or the other right exactly since we don't Mm -hmm. know what causes it sure yeah um And then they also found that the combination exercise plus Mediterranean diet didn't have a statistical significance, a statistically significant effect on postpartum depression, but they did find that the Mediterranean diet alone did have an impact on postpartum depression, which I find really interesting and would probably like to look a little more into that because it just seems like... Exercise, I think exercise would help, just like anecdotally. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm curious too to compare treatments for that they've looked at for postpartum depression compared to just standard depression. 
and see yeah. like how those compare, you know, because I it seems to me like what you've been sharing that it's that the causes of postpartum depression could be somewhat aligned with causes of depression, but seem to have their own route. Right, exactly. So that could definitely be something to look for learn too. Um, another therapy that I was reading about is wake light therapy and adjusting the circadian rhythm hmm. of patients who have postpartum depression because patients with postpartum depression are more likely to go to bed later and sleep in later. And so this study looked at shifting their circadian rhythm using wake light therapy and shifting it a little earlier so that it's more on schedule with when it's dark outside. So can you explain a little bit what wake light therapy is? Wake, sorry, yeah. Wake light therapy is just waking you up at a certain time with bright lights versus shutting down all the lights at a certain time to go to bed. So, oh, so you only do one. Is that what you're saying? So when you go to bed, you turn out all the lights to get your circadian rhythm a little bit back to normal Mm -hmm. because typically when the sun goes down our body is supposed to start producing melatonin which makes us sleepy and want to go to bed Mm -hmm. and then when it's light outside our body produces cortisol which wakes us up and then we start to get up so that schedule this study was saying was shown to be shifted in patients with postpartum depression and they were seeing if shifting it back to like when it gets dark outside in the evening to when it gets light outside in the morning if that can help with symptoms versus Mm. patients going to bed really really late I think it was like 3 a.m and then waking up a little bit later that's that's the disease state the I see yeah so when they were looking at this um they were using art they weren't using like artificial sources to create light or to create darkness they were just using naturally like what time the sun goes down and gets dark outside and what time the sun comes up and becomes light outside no sorry they were using art they were using artificial sources okay but were they were they using artificial sources at the appropriate times like the times like when it actually got dark outside they used an artificial source to make sure that it stayed really dark in their room or whatever and what time it, the sun came up and the light came out they additionally used some artificial light sources to bring light in and wake them up at that particular time Yes. Okay. And they, they started with the patient's like more natural sleep schedule and gradually they got them to mm. when it gets dark outside and when it gets Okay. Dark. Like a slow transition from a bad sleep schedule to a good sleep schedule. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so those were some of the kind of more natural therapies they looked at, which as you can kind of guess with natural treatments... There's not really good, hard, conclusive evidence, mm-hmm. um, and, and especially with psycho- psychological studies, it's a little harder to control the variables. So definitely more research could be done on that, which hopefully there will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a couple of medications that have come out to be treated for postpartum depression. Specifically, the first one is S-ketamine, S-isomer of ketamine can be used to treat depression and therefore postpartum depression, not specifically for postpartum depression. And ketamine has been shown to prevent postpartum depression for three days to one month. So kind of a more short-term 
Uh, oh, actually, okay. It prevents postpartum depression for three days to one month after you have your baby. So for that first month, if you take ketamine as prescribed by your doctor, it can prevent postpartum depression, but then after that month, the outcomes are pretty much the same whether or not you've taken it. So it's just kind of that mm. short term. But then there's another treatment called bruxanolone, which is the first FDA-approved antidepressant for postpartum depression. So this was approved in 2019, and those hormones I was talking about earlier, progesterone and allopregnolone, this treatment is oral allopregnolone. So like I was saying before, that level drops when you have your baby, and bruxanolone basically gives you some of it back so that if your postpartum depression might be caused by that drop in hormones, it can help restore that level and so you feel fewer symptoms, mm. which I thought was really interesting. It is. And this also, both these treatments are also better for postpartum depression than your traditional SSRIs that you are used to treat depression because they act in different pathways so they can take effect a lot more quickly than SSRIs, which typically take a few weeks to kick in and start working. Mm. So, yeah, it does seem like postpartum depression has a pretty abrupt onset from from what you've been sharing. Yeah, compared to maybe a more traditional onset of depression. Yeah. Anyway, I thought all of that was really interesting, um, and just new treatments that are coming out for it, and how now more people are paying attention to it, and I thought it's headed in a good general direction overall. Yeah. Even though maybe more research could be done. Yeah, absolutely. As, as with most things. Yeah, and so overall, I could just think this class was a really cool opportunity to have dedicated time to do our own exploration of what research is out there for something that we're all genuinely very interested in. Um, compared to just being super focused on our traditional medical school classes and everything else that's going on in our engineering coursework, we might think that we would be too busy or something like that to actually explore things that we're interested in. Because I know for sure there are times when I come across an article or something that I want to read and I'm like, oh, this would be so interesting, but it's 20 pages and, oh, I have 200 more Anki cards I need to review (laughs) or something like that. So I don't always get through the stuff that I actually want to pay attention to or give, give a little extra fun interest to. So this was a cool way to like have that be kind of a, a more built in structured part of our lives with school. Um, and it was fun and enjoyable. Yeah, I agree. Kind of like forced fun. I would say. (laughs) Yeah. Forced fun. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Yeah. And we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye.